Hello and welcome to Viewpoints. I'm Boris Shasain here with you for the next half hour. On today's show, Nova Scotia will spend $17 million on new housing projects across the province. This is a fantastic news for many Nova Scotians who are desperately looking for affordable housing. So that announcement will make a difference. The District of Kitimat, British Columbia, is celebrating its 70th anniversary and the collaboration between industry and residents. Kinnaman is one of only, I think, a couple of communities in North America that's what they call a planned garden community. And so what they did is they looked at prevailing wind patterns and, and all these different kind of things to say, okay, if the industry is here, where's the best place for residential? A Six Nation Language Summit looks to kickstart language revitalization. If we were to set a goal that says, well, let's create a thousand novice level speakers in the next five years, I can run one conversational class that has 10 people every year for the next 10 years and I can commit to that. The Cortis Island Academy goes into year two of an original high school program. Have them say things like they feel transformed, they've never felt that school was something for them and now they feel like school is a powerful place that will prepare them for a future that they want to be a leader in. Happy to have you with us. Follow us on Twitter at CanadaLJI. Listen to all our news online at canada-info.ca. The Nova Scotian federal governments are investing a total of $16.6 million in 10 affordable housing projects across the province. Some 236 rental units will be built. Stephen Richard, the Executive Director of Housing Solutions and Development at Nova Scotia's Municipal Affairs and Housing, says this investment represents an opportunity for Nova Scotians who are desperately looking for affordable housing. The projects should be ready within 24 months. They will support different types of housing depending on the requirements and locations, including multifamily apartment buildings and row houses. All 10 projects are located outside of Halifax. But Michael Cabalin, the executive director of the Affordable Housing Association of Nova Scotia, says that the investments are not really targeted at where we're seeing the problem grow most, which is within the urban center, says Kabalin. He notes that 20,000 new people migrated to Halifax last year. Sarah Gouda is in Halifax, Nova Scotia. She spoke with Stephen Richard. What government announced uh, in partnership with the Canadian Housing and Mortgage Corporation, CMHC, federal government, uh, is 10 projects that will be built over the next few months that will create a total of 236 rental units of which 155 will be affordable. And what we mean by affordable is really as a starting point for us, in order for government to be involved in a project, whether it's from a private developer or for not from a nonprofit group, is we will say, um, you know, we, we know what the market rent is in that area, and we want you, developer, to at least discount some of those units to 80% of that local market rent. So that's what affordable means. In some projects, the discount will be deeper. So it could go all the way to 60% of, uh, of that market rent. So for example, if the, uh, if the market rent in one particular area for a, a unit was $1,000, through our programs, that unit would be rented to eligible tenants for $800. 
In some cases, it could be 750, it could be 700. So it all depends on the project and the level of contribution. Uh, but we're really excited about these uh, these 10 projects. They're all outside of Halifax. Um, there were some questions about that. So we're really pleased. We know the need is is uh, is great across the province, but we're, we're pleased to see a level of activity in all of our communities in the province. And so, um, so that announcement um, will uh, we'll make a difference for, again, uh, many Nova Scotians. So we have uh, three projects that will be built in, uh, in Cape Breton. So two in Sydney, one in uh, Sydney Mines, where, uh, where I, I had the pleasure of being part of that announcement. There will be one project in Guysboro. There will be one in Tatamagush, uh, one in Amherst, one in Shelburne, uh, one in Barrington Passage, one in Truro, and the other one will be in Alma, which is just outside of Westville in Pictou County. Uh, in some cases, we're talking about row houses uh, in Guysboro. They're building a, a multi-family apartment building, smaller scale, for example, in, in Sydney, where we're, we have uh, 11 units. So, you know, developers build products that are needed uh, in the community and that best fit the land that they have. What do you think are some effective ways to help meet the increased demand? to address the gap? Some of that includes sort of continuing to recruit um, new trill, uh, skilled labor, um, skilled trades people. So uh, government is, has been really active on that front. You know, one of the challenges we have is, is if we bring, uh, similar to healthcare workers, if we bring more nurses because we need them, or continuing care assistants or more physicians, we need to have a house to, a housing to uh, for them to live in. Um, if we look, across Canada or around the world, I mean, many jurisdictions are, are facing the same uh, same sort of challenges with the population increase. If we could have arrangement with uh, manufacturers um, that could produce housing, the type of housing that, uh, that developers will want to have rather than just waiting to have the site ready and build on site, that might help us address some of the gap that, uh, that we're seeing. And since I moved to Halifax, I have always kept hearing that Halifax is a growing city and it's changed so much from 10 years ago. And in your opinion, do you think Halifax will continue to be a fast booming growing city? Well, I'm not an economist and, and I don't work in our, uh, our population uh, uh, growth division, but uh, by, by all indication, I, I believe so. I think Halifax and, and Nova Scotia is well positioned. It's no longer best kept secret. And while People listening might might argue uh, what I'm about to say. Uh, it's it's still a, a very affordable place to live, uh, and of course that is if you compare with other urban areas. So for what Halifax can provide, um, it 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 has a you know a, a really really high quality of life, and um, and I I think that that will continue to be uh, attractive to many newcomers. Uh, we are attracting many international students and we're seeing that you know after they graduate they stay here um you know government has a as a uh, an aggressive uh, target to double our population um you know, over the next uh, few decades and that will uh require a strong capital city and so we need to we need to ensure that uh, that growth uh, is inclusive of everyone regardless of their incomes and abilities and so you know, my team here is is really focused on ensuring that uh, those that you know may not have the same opportunities or the same income levels, uh, and our seniors, for example, who live on fixed income, uh, can uh, continue to afford um, to, to 
uh, afford where they live and and uh, and, and continue to contribute to uh, to society. So uh, really excited about the future, despite the challenges that we're going through right now. People forget that an important player in in this world is the community housing sector. And by community housing sector, I mean cooperatives and I mean nonprofit housing organizations. So some folks might be uh, familiar with the names Affordable Housing uh, Association of Nova Scotia or AHANS or uh, the Mi'kmaq Native Friendship Center who are working on several exciting projects for Indigenous people living off-reserve uh, and living in, in Halifax in, in particular. Uh, we are working with fabulous nonprofit organizations and, and co-ops across Nova Scotia, and that stock is is growing. And, and government has made a lot of effort and a lot of investment uh, in recent years to not only stabilize the sector, but create the, the conditions for the sector to thrive, grow, and continue to meet our needs. Because the nonprofit, what they bring is is of course a mandate to address some of the social issues that we're that we're facing. So people that probably requires support services, people that are experiencing homelessness, those partnerships are really critical with our nonprofit or, or, or co-op sector. And so uh, so that's an area I think that deserves a, a little more um, awareness or a little more visibility because uh, they're working really hard. The Housing Trust of Nova Scotia is another one, which now they're, they're gonna undertake uh, through a partnership with the province to, to build modular housing to help bring those skilled trade workers and, and healthcare professionals I was uh, I was talking about earlier. And so uh, so I think, you know, for me, uh, this is an area that uh, that probably deserves a little more attention. And, uh, and Nova Scotia is kind of leading the way in Canada in terms of supporting and, and all the uh, all the new tools and, and uh, uh, what we've done over the last couple of years to support this uh, this important sector. So I just wanted to mention that in closing. That was Stephen Richard, Executive Director, Housing Solutions and Development at the Government of Nova Scotia, speaking to Saraguda and Halifax. to viewpoints listen to all our stories online at canada-info.ca and follow us on twitter at canada lji To Ontario, where the city of Kingston issued trespass notices to those living at the homeless encampment in the Bell Park area last week. Last December, the city council voted to put a hold on uh, evicting people from the campground until residents could find a place to, to stay for the winter. But the city has moved forward with the March 27th deadline. Some people remain present at the encampment despite the deadline. The city and Kingston police say they will not be physically removing people from the encampment. Details with Alexandra Fernandez in Kingston, Ontario. The City of Kingston issued trespass notices to those living at the homeless encampment on Wednesday, March 22nd, so that was last week, and they gave residents of the camp a deadline of Monday, March 27th to evacuate. The city will be working alongside Kingston Police to clean up the area this week, and the city is also emphasizing that the police are present to be peace officers, for example, to mitigate a situation between a dispute of what belongs to someone, for example. 
Mutual Aid Cataraqui Kingston, also known as MAC, is a local project initiated by the AKA Autonomous Social Center that is located at 75 Queen Street. And MAC is calling on residents in the Kingston area to come together to stop the evictions happening at the Integrated Care Hub and Bell Park area. In a news release put out by MAC on March 17th, they list and explain three concerns in reference to the claims that the city is making regarding consulting with the encampment residents, the low barrier options in the region, as well as the availability of shelter beds, which is why we spoke with Mayor Patterson to gain some more insight into this issue. The release also writes that the Waterloo ruling made it clear that encampment residents cannot be evicted when there is a lack of adequate indoor shelter options and that service restrictions such as rules around substance use have the, quote, net effect of reducing the number of beds that would otherwise be available in the region. Mac is encouraging members of the community to write to Kingston City Council and to join their rapid response phone tree. If evictions proceed, they will call on community members to stand in solidarity with the encampment residents and against eviction. I am Alexandra Fernandez in Kingston, Ontario. make a kind of left turn to British Columbia, where the district of Kitimat is celebrating its 70th anniversary of incorporation. The district has an unusual history. The incorporation of Kitimat dates back to March 31st, 1953. At the time, the Aluminum Company of Canada, or Alcan, uh, was uh, constructing its aluminum smelter, which uh, then uh, needed to be manned. The community was built around that project, with the Kitimat River separating the residency and industry areas. The community was then renamed in 1970 to become the District of Kitimat. We define ourselves as a marvel of nature and industry, said uh, Mayor Phil Germuth. Kitimat is not only home to Rio Tinto's uh, newly upgraded aluminum smelter, but also to the LNG Canada's liquefied natural gas facility and the Haisla Nation's Cedar LNG project, which has just been approved to enter the environmental assessment phase. Morgan Budden is in Terrace, British Columbia. She spoke with uh, Kitimat Mayor Phil Germuth. The District of Kitimat will be celebrating 70 years of incorporation starting on March 31st. Kitimat Mayor Phil Germuth first explained why Kitimat is called a district and not a city or a town, and when the change was made. When it goes by population and the area that you have. And so because we have a relatively small population but a very large area, you're called a district. So March 31st, 1953, uh, our community officially incorporated as the corporation of the District of Kitimat, which created our local municipality. And the municipality was officially renamed the District of Kitimat in 1970. Mayor Germuth went on to tell the history of Kitimat that started with the need for industry development. So what happened is uh, the Aluminum Company of Canada back in uh, 1949 signed a deal with the provincial government at the time called the Industrial Development Act. And that was where the Aluminum Company of Canada was given the rights to create the watershed, of course, the Kamano and then to build a smelter here in Kitimat. And so what they did at that time is they knew they needed a workforce to build this smelter here in Kitimat and, and of course, to operate it. And so what they did is they hired out of um, out of retirement Clarence Stein. He was a world-renowned planner. And so that's why Kitimat is one of only, I think, a couple of communities in North America that's what they call a planned 
garden community. And so what he did is before anything even started, he said, okay, you're going to be wanting to put a smelter over here, which is basically on the west side of the valley. And so the Kitimat River kind of separates the west from the east. And so what they did is they looked at prevailing wind patterns and, and all these different kind of things to say, okay, if the industry is here, where's the best place for residential? And they found that would be on the east side. So even if there were any emissions and smells or anything for, from industry, it wouldn't be going on to the residential. So the community has actually been very efficiently planned and that you newer future uh, residential neighborhoods were going to be so that your water and sewer and everything were actually a lot easier to link things to. So yeah, it's a very uniquely designed community. It's worked out very well. And of course, back in the, when, when they first started building the community, the only thing here in the Valley was the Heisel Nation, right? There was no no Kitimat. There was no other industry. So it's a, it's a, it's a very unique community that way. And although the district of Kitimat has its roots in industry, Mayor Germuth acknowledged that it's a small part of the territory's history. 70 years as a municipality is a small part of the larger history of this territory, of course. That is the unceded traditional territory of the Heisel Nation. And, uh, you know, we're very proud of the relationship the district has built with the Heisel Nation and the ongoing efforts to build it even stronger in the years ahead. Kicking the party off on March 31st, Germuth ran down the celebrations that the district has planned. Starting on Friday, March 31st, we've got a pop-up museum display in the city center mall. So that'll be, of course, it'll be photos from our history, things like that, about the history of Kitimat, of course, and uh, we'll be handing out cake. So uh, Friday, March 31st, I believe, from noon to four, please come on down for that. Also, free drop-ins are being provided for all residents to our leisure service facilities, and that's from March 31st to April 2nd to help celebrate the milestone. Also on April 2nd, they're doing a Bring Your Family to Paint the Ice at Tamatic Arena from one to three. And what we're also doing with a special hour for those uh, with sensory needs from noon to one. And then as the year goes on, we've got exciting activities we have planned include a youth movie contest in June. There's going to be a community picnic in July, a community movie night in August, a community trivia night. And then, of course, we're incorporating this celebration into other events like our annual flag raising ceremony and our Canada Day events. This story is brought to you in partnership with the Local Journalism Initiative of Canada. This is Erica Butler in Sackville, New Brunswick. You're tuned to Viewpoints. Check out our stories online at canada-info.ca and follow us on Twitter at CanadaLJI. Two Six Nations Ontario Where Language Summit held on March 23rd and 24th is hoping to kickstart the language revitalization. Only two of the six languages on Six Nations, Mohawk and Cayuga, are commonly heard, while Seneca, Tuscarora, Oneida and Onondaga struggle to remain alive. The summit was held in partnership with several Six Nation organizations, such as Grand River Employment and Training, or GREAT, and the McMaster University, where the Indigenous Studies Program and language courses were launched some 30 years ago. During the summit, researcher and keynote speaker Sarah General Deer uh, revealed that only 2% of uh, community members are traditional language speakers now? Reporter David Moses was there. There's a small percentage of our of our um, our community that is speaking, and that means that there's a lot that we can do to help and to share. And for me, that's really exciting because if we think about coming back up that scale, that graded interruption scale, that is an opportunity for the many organizations that we have to kind of come together around that goal. You have to create speakers. That's one thing that you have to do. And we can do that, and we do do that together already. If we were to set a goal that says, well, let's create a thousand speakers of, um, a thousand novice level speakers in the next five years, 
we can absolutely do that. And an organization might say, hey, I can run one conversational class that has 10 people every year for the next 10 years, and I can commit to that. And they have then committed to 100 of that, of that goal. So everybody can kind of articulate what these goals might be, and, and some people are already really moving ahead with that, with that particular goal, and some people have already been doing it already. So there's, there's ways that we can factor in all of, this, all of this work together. On day one, Derehante Miller gave a stark contrast to when he grew up and was surrounded by speakers who all spoke different languages but still understood each other. Our languages had to go underground for a long time. Our ceremonies had to go underground for a long time. Many cultural practices had to go underground for a long time. And it's only now, recently, that it's become safe to share those things. And when I look at the worldview that we receive from our languages, it's absolutely amazing. It's been 30 years since I started. And we have a word when we say, it's the kind of thing that's an eye-opener. When I was young, my, my, my grandparents were very well-versed. They were fluent. All of their friends were fluent. And when they would visit us, my, my grandparents, their friends, they wouldn't all be speaking the same language. I could tell, even though I wasn't a speaker, that they were talking a different language because they, they sound very differently, even though they're all, um, shall we say, grammar-based, the same. It's very different, the sound of it, to your ear. And I could tell, I don't know what languages they were speaking. I know it was all Ngwe languages. And they could all understand each other. Keynote speaker and MC Amos Key reminded everyone that residential schools took their toll on language speaking and passing it down, but how an online learning course was inspired and developed by someone whose mother attended the mush hall. There's some great things happening for our folks that are off reserve through this kind of initiative, and Sam Hill is, um, is a part of that. And when he talks to me about it, it was his, the purpose was his mother went through a residential school in the Mushal, and they were fluent in their language when they were kids, but she gave it up and never gave it to her children. So that's another drive for a lot of people is that Mushal up there in Branford, what it did to our people. And then now the next generation is now trying their best, their darndest to recover the language. He also said there are several initiatives already available, such as the undergraduate program at Six Nations Polytechnic. Friday, March 31st is National Languages Day in Canada, and several programming specials are taking place in the community, including at Six Nations Polytechnic. I'm David Moses. And to close the show, we go back uh, to British Columbia. Cortez Island Academy High School is going ahead with its second year program after a successful pilot project in 2022. Last year, the Cortez Island Academy set up a five-month semester designed for students who are looking to expand their educational experience. And I quote, 
beyond the classroom and into practice as they explore the complexity of our relationship with the natural environment through experiential and project-based learning, end quote. The academy has only 20 spots available. Candidates from Clahous and local to Cortez students will be prioritized. They will make up about half of the program. Students from other rural and remote areas, as well as from across the province, will make up for the rest. Right now in Canada, rural and remote students are undereducated and underperform in every measurable outcome. They drop out of high school at almost double the rates of their urban counterparts. I believe this is because they've not had options, says Manda Galepsi, head administrator of the Cortes Island Academy. The theme for the 2023-2024 semester is forest ecology and will feature internationally recognized scientist and author Dr. Suzanne Simard, Haikai Institute, the numerous Cortes-based uh, social organizations, including Cortes Radio, as well as a team of teachers, local workshop leaders and facilitators. Louis Belcourt met up with the Cortes Island Academy lead administrator, Manda This actually represents a really big turning point in the Cortez Island Academy because our first semester, which was the 2022-2023 semester, was a pilot program. And it was a pilot all around. It was a pilot for the school district to see whether or not there was enough interest from students and from the local community. And it was a pilot for the local community to see whether or not we could pull together all the resources, the huge number of resources it would take from our local community to make an entire semester high school experience work in our little remote community. And it was a resounding, off-the-charts, unbelievable success. And that success it feels so far beyond a dream come true. Uh, I think anybody who's lived on Cortez has felt the profound loss of what it has meant to not be able to provide education for our teenagers on the island. It has impacted our local elementary school because it means families move away. It's impacted the businesses and jobs that would usually rely not just on teenagers, but on their families. Right on having executive directors and manager types who at their peak earning and peak knowledge years in the workforce leave because their community has no place for their children or watching year after year as students have to figure out a way to earn enough money that they can go live with strangers in a nearby town in order to get a high school education. The whole thing has been heartbreaking for me. And then year after year to watch our friends leave, even when we made a different choice. So to be able to provide not just schooling, but schooling that brought our students and made them want to stay home, many of them, and then brought some of the most interesting, amazing, vibrant students from all over the province and even in other countries to our little island and have them say things like they feel transformed, they've never felt that school was something for them, and now they feel like school is a powerful 
place that will prepare them for a future that they want to be a leader in. That's incredible. We had an incredible diversity of students that were part of our program, and we are super proud about that diversity and the lives that we've touched and the incredible work that these students did, which you can see and listen to also by going to CortezIslandAcademy.ca, and you can go into the 2022-2023 program and listen to the podcasts that they created, watch the videos that they did, and see tons of photos that show some of their work and the engagement of these students. It's really inspiring. I do hope everybody will take a moment to visit. That's all for us at Viewpoints. Thanks to our journalists this week, David Moses, Alexandra Fernandez, Sarah Gouda, Morgan Budden, and Louis Belcourt, uh, National Editor Maureen McEwen. I'm your host and producer, Boris Shassain. Viewpoints is produced by the Community Radio Fund of Canada. Great to have you with us. Stay tuned to the show that follows. Until next week, ciao. Yeah.